Hello and welcome to a new four-part podcast by Judith Ankertel and Miriam Gould, made in commemoration for the Remembrance Day of Lost Species. This is Chapter 2, The Seabed. Welcome to The Fateful Tale of Chesapeake Bay. Ah, and we're recording. Tuesday morning. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Judith. What's really interesting, Miriam, as, as, we, as we're sort of making this, is that the chapters or the episodes, they're going to be very different to each other. And the, sort of the content for today's one, which were, you know, was kind of much more about the ecology of the Bay Area in, in all of its constituent parts, as it were. So I, I'm hoping it's going to feel like quite a um, change from yeah. one. I think you sort of describe it in the previous one. In your visualisation is we're in the water column now. We are. And yes. uh, heading all the way to the bottom, to the seabed. And we're, we're picking up on the seagrasses, macroalgae, uh, the, the condition of the seabed. Yeah. Um, and how, how precious the seabed is. I know you and I feel similarly about this. We feel strongly about this. It's the foundation of life that the seabed could be. But also, you, you with being working with the land, mm. your the foundation of life is coming from the earth's surface, is it? Yeah, the soil. Mm. Yeah, every time we talk about the seabed or I read about the seabed, I'm instantly drawing parallels to the earth, the soil, yeah, yeah. and the land. Mm. And I think that I get, yeah, we mean, we're going to explore that in this episode, how the found like you say the foundation of life in the sea and the foundation of life on land yeah. how related they are yeah. and how they affect one another yeah absolutely yeah yeah we literally we tread all over it or in the seabed we we, mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't tread over it but it is completely invisible to us as we're talking about seabeds um, I want to mention sea grasses. And if you're not getting kind of a, a visualization or a feeling about this, um, think about you're swimming close to shore and they are those tickling, mildly unnerving vegetation beneath your feet. That might give you a better idea. I have come to see them in a new light and I'm hoping I'm going to be able to bestow this upon you. They are kind of wonderful. Seagrasses are the only flowering plant able to live in seawater and pollinate whilst submerged. I'm hoping you're you're thinking, really, is that possible? It is, apparently. Um, If in abundance, they give the appearance of an underwater grassland. And this has been commented on by sailors in the Chesapeake Bay in the 17th century who marvelled at the sea meadows billowing in the clear water beneath their boats. And at that time, it's estimated that there were 590,000 acres of bay covered with seagrasses and weeds. The science bit. Seagrasses are the only marine plant that have a full root system, a vascular system, and even flowers under the water. They evolved from terrestrial plants, which is why we see them as grasslands. They're sometimes referred to as meadows, and I've also seen them referred to as prairies. They have roots, leaves, flowers, and underground stems called rhizomes that lock the plants into the sea floor. These rhizomes, roots, and leaves extract nutrients from the sediment and from the water. And as they're photosynthesizing plants, they absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. These roots reaching down into the sediment help stabilise the sea floor, which is prone to erosion from, uh, from wave motion. One seagrass is known as a blade, and if you get a meadow of these blades, 
they become a safe harbour for hundreds of species of invertebrates. Could be a sea star, also as, like as, known as a starfish, sea urchin, earthworm, sponges, crabs, snails, clams. These sea grasses and the sea floor are often referred to as the nursery of the ocean. The sea grasses are a perfect hiding place and haven for juvenile fish. They can hide from predators and there's plenty to eat in all the little invertebrates all around the base of the sea grasses. And this is, this is somewhere that they can, these young fish known as fry can develop to maturity. By the 1950s, Chesapeake Bay had seen a sharp decline in seagrasses, and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has set a target of restoring 185,000 acres by 2025. I have genuine breaking news, and I am really, I'm just, I'm really excited by what I've just read and by the strange coincidence of timings, this is just a really interesting piece of serendipity. Anyway, going back to the recording, I had just finished the audio recording of the bit about Chesapeake Bay and the seagrasses, and I finished off with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has set a target of restoring 185,000 acres by 2025. And so I make myself a cup of coffee, I'm going to reward myself, sit down, open up my Twitter feed, and... Listen to this headline. World's largest seagrass restoration project is a Virginia success, planting 600 acres that grow to become 9,000 acres of seagrass. That is within half an hour of my finishing my audio clip on seagrasses. What a piece of, well, as I say, what a piece of serendipity. So I just wanted to share that with you and more details will come. Once I was a valley, green and lush, my grasses swaying in the breeze, rivers and tributaries like veins in my soil as they journeyed to the sea to mix their sweet water with the salty expanse, to breathe fresh life into that teeming eternity. It was a quiet time, animals grazing, bathing, sunning themselves, seasons coming and going as I changed with the sky, my soils warmed and cooled and warmed again. Then, as the sun grew stronger, melting the ice far away, that salty expanse drew closer, 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 until it covered me like a blanket, and I found myself to be the bottom of something, the bed of something, the foundation of something. Still, animals travelled over me, plants grew in me, their shapes and habits soon familiar. Now my grasses swayed in the currents, my apexes becoming clad in shell-covered life. Where the air had circled over my dips and lumps, mingling warm with cool, now the waters mingled, warm currents tendrilling into cold. Though darker than the sky, the water that lay on me was clear and full of life, and I could still see the sky, my old friend, and we were still connected. New shapes began to appear, smooth, efficient shapes that sliced their way towards land or drifted near it. Nets were lowered, poles levered up, an oyster here, an oyster there, and the currents continued to mingle around me, soft caresses, playful and nourishing. Then a new and painful thing happened. Something flat and unyielding scraped off some of my skin, taking with it all that it sustained, and a part of me lay barren, bereft. More and more of me was flattened, my apexes removed, my skin torn off. There was nowhere for the currents to dance, to mingle, nowhere for the oysters to nestle, and I grew cold. The water above me darkened and I lost connection with the sky. It was a quiet time, but now the silence was not one of life continuing gently in a spiral, changing slowly, growing slowly without purpose. 
Now it was quiet with emptiness. This silence was dead. Now it was quiet with emptiness. This silence was dead. And the space was dead. Miriam's mournful seabed monologue leaves us looking onto the phenomena known as dead zones. Dead zones have a global spread. They can occur naturally, but are predominantly caused by human activity. I find that in my own work as an artist working on environmental issues, that it is the attention to detail that throws a sharp light on the state of our natural world, a sort of um, a deeper dive, deep research into it. And so what follows is going to be a, a degree of detail. And I shall flag it up as the science bit. So the science bit, how to make a dead zone. A dead zone is an area either in a lake, a river or an ocean that can no longer sustain life. And our retelling of the Chesapeake story will unravel the making of a dead zone, and it may, may take a while. It starts with a change to water quality. By 1880, 80% of the forests running up to the rivers and bay had been cleared, and the land was now being farmed. Now, if you're not a scientist, a farmer, or environmentalist, this probably doesn't mean an awful lot to you. And you're thinking, yep. Forests become farmland. I drive past farmland all the time. But uh, this deforestation would have a significant effect on water quality. It's kind of unintended consequences. And this is why. Forested areas break the fall of rain as it lands on the branches and the leaves of the canopy and reaches the forest floor in spitter spatters. The forest floor is layers deep of time-past fallings and accumulations made up of leaves, broken branches, mosses, ferns, and all in a gentle decay. The rainwater trickles through this mulch and finds its way into the watershed at a leisurely pace. By contrast, the deep ploughed fields of the farmland were conduits and not suckers of rainfall. There were no natural breaks in its descent, and runoff swiftly joined the watershed, taking with it plant nutrients and earth in a silty mix. These runoffs are rich in the naturally occurring nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, and in a balanced ecosystem, this nutrient-rich addition encourages the growth of phytoplankton, often known as algae, and this occurs seasonally and can be a source of nourishment for much sea life. Definition detour. Definition of Phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are free-floating, microscopic marine organisms. They exist in a drifting or wandering state. They need light to photosynthesize, so will stay on the water's top surfaces. If all is in balance, they can provide food for a wide range of sea creatures, including whales, fish, shrimps, snails, jellyfish, and they're the first link in the food chain. However, the balance is tipped by the sheer scale of the nutrients entering the water. I see it as baby bio on steroids. And if you don't know what baby bio is, you've never kept a plant. And this is actually quite a good analogy because on the label on the bottle of baby bio, it says, do not overfeed. So add to these rich nutrients, add sewage from the burgeoning population, and you have water that will produce exponential growth in the phytoplankton. They are superfeeders. What happens next is known as eutrophication, science bit, and it lays a thick green coverlet over parts of the bay and the adjoining rivers. This blanket of green phytoplankton blocks out the sun to the seabed below, and over years of returning phytoplankton blooms, the sea meadows wither, reduce and disappear. The loss of seagrasses is significant, as they are nurseries for young fish and the habitat for much in the aquatic food web. And going back to the oysters, oysters are in fact filter feeders and known to filter phytoplankton and nitrogen from the water, but the oysters having been fished to near extinction would have little impact on keeping the water clean. The sea floor is now flattened by decades of dredging. A naturally occurring sea floor will have over time developed its own geography, there will be hills, or apexes as Miriam calls them, and valleys. 
the water currents will navigate their way around these features, churning, changing direction, all the time refreshing the flow of water. A flat seabed has no distinguishing features and the water currents find nowhere to dance. The phytoplankton comes to the end of its life, dies and sinks to the bottom of the seabed. The decomposition of these organisms uses oxygen in the process, but the sheer scale of the phytoplankton lying on the seabed sucks the very last bit of dissolved oxygen out of the water. There is nothing left to sustain life. A dead zone has been achieved. Fish can escape and find fresher water, but less mobile sea life die of suffocation. Definition detour. If you are following up on any of these threads, search for hypoxia, which refers to low or depleted oxygen in a water body. Anoxia is a more severe form of oxygen depletion. Back to the fish. We're cheering them on. They're escaping the dead zone and finding water where they can breathe. But the chances are not in their favour. Dead zones are well documented by scientists. Some are visible to the eye and through local knowledge. Fishing boats target the area on the edges of dead zones as they know the fish will be accumulating there. Hi, it's me. As a lover of trees, when I read Callum Roberts' chapter and got to the part about deforestation having an effect on the bay, I guess I had one of those light bulb moments. You know, I'd learnt about the water cycle in school and I spent a lot of years living amongst trees. I'm planting trees this winter on my field, etc, etc. But I don't think I'd ever really put it all together, how trees and the sea are connected in this crucial balance. I did a little deep dive of my own into deforestation and I wanted to share it with you. So before I begin, my sources for this were the World Wildlife Organization, Pashamama, which is an organization working with the Achua people in the Amazon, an article by Fred Pierce in Yale Environment 360, the National Geographic and the Southwest River Basin District Flood Risk Management Plan 2015 to 2021. So forests cover 31% of the land area on our planet. They purify water and air and provide people with jobs. Some 13.2 million people across the world have a job in the forest sector. Even more importantly, some 250 million people live in forest and savanna areas and depend on these areas for subsistence and income. Many of them are among the world's rural poor. Deforestation is the clearing, destroying or otherwise removal of trees through deliberate, natural or accidental means. Now, it happens all around the world, but the majority of it is currently happening in the Amazon rainforest. Deforestation occurs for a number of reasons, including farming, which is the most relevant to our story, uh, with 80% of deforestation resulting from extensive cattle ranching and logging for materials and development. It has been happening for thousands of years, arguably since we stopped being mostly hunter-gatherers and started planting seeds for food, otherwise known as becoming an agricultural-based society. As with so many human practices, it has only really become a large-scale issue in the last few hundred years, just like we've seen with the industrial fishing and etc. One of the most dangerous and unsettling effects of deforestation is the loss of animal and plant species due to their loss of habitat. 80% of Earth's land animals and plants live in forests. I think that's sort of mind-blowing. The trees of the rainforest that provide shelter for some species also provide the canopy that regulates the temperature. So deforestation results in a more drastic temperature change from day to night, like in a desert. So it'll be really hot in the day because the sun's just beating directly down onto the ground. And then it'll be really cold at night because there's nothing keeping in the warmth. 
This extreme temperature change is dangerous, if not fatal, to much animal and plant life. In addition to the loss of habitat, the lack of trees also allows a greater amount of greenhouse gases to be released into the atmosphere. Healthy forests absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they act as valuable carbon sinks. So they hold a lot of the Earth's carbon and obviously by clearing these areas we're releasing this carbon whether it's uh, cutting it or burning it. The trees also help control the level of water in the atmosphere by helping to regulate the water cycle. The following is probably the most complex of the effects of deforestation but actually I think it's one of the most interesting. So in deforested areas there is less water in the air to be returned to the soil. This then causes drier soil and the inability to grow crops. Now, I'm going to try and explain this in various ways. One way is this metaphor that I found uh, that really worked for me. So if you imagine every tree in the forest is a fountain and what it's doing is it's sucking water out of the ground through its roots and releasing this water in the shape of vapour, water vapour, into the atmosphere through pores in its foliage. So it's sucking the water up through its roots and releasing it as water vapour through its leaves. And then all these little water droplets in their billions create rivers of water in the air that form clouds and inevitably create rainfall hundreds or even thousands of miles away. But as we take the trees away, these rivers that they create in the air, these dry up and the lands that depend on these clouds releasing their water, the rain, the lands start to dry up. So a growing body of research suggests that this is a hitherto neglected impact of deforestation and in many continental interiors, so in inland places, this could dwarf the impacts of global climate change. It could dry up the Nile, disrupt the Asian monsoon and desiccate fields from Argentina to the Midwestern United States. To go even more sciencey with this, so forests moderate their local climate by keeping their local environments cool. Partly they do it by what we were talking about before, which is shading the land with their foliage, but they also do it by releasing moisture from their leaves. This releasing moisture, which in us, I guess, is called uh, perspiration when we sweat. And so when trees do this, this process is called transpiration. And this process requires energy, which they extract from the surrounding air, which cools it. So it's this cooling process. As they release moisture, they are using energy from the air, cooling it. So they're cooling their local environment. And the inland dry season rainfall that I was talking about, the rain that they help create. So this isn't so much an issue along coastal areas. This becomes a real issue in like far inland. So this inland dry season rainfall they create, that is through this transpiration process, which is part of this fountain process that I was describing earlier. And for example, the effects of this. So the Amazon rainforest provides moisture as far as the Midwestern US, which gets 50% of its rainfall from water evaporating from land. So not from rivers or seas or things like that. Further effects of deforestation include soil erosion and coastal flooding. Without trees to anchor fertile soil, erosion can occur and sweep the land into rivers. The agricultural plants that often replace the trees don't hold onto the soil in the same way. And actually a lot of these plants, like coffee, cotton, palm, soybean and wheat, can actually worsen the soil erosion. Uh, Scientists have estimated that a third of the world's arable land has been lost through soil erosion and other types of degradation since 1960. And as fertile soil washes away, agriculture producers move on, clearing more forest and continuing the cycle of soil loss. So it's this vicious cycle. And then the barren land, which they leave behind, is then more susceptible to flooding, uh, especially in coastal regions. So as large amounts of forests, especially rainforests, are cleared away, uh, allowing exposed earth to wither and die, it destroys the habitats of innumerable species, as we said, but also the indigenous communities who live there and depend on the forest to sustain their way of life are also under threat. 
a loss of forests like this has an immediate and direct effect on their lifestyle that we will never fully understand in our highly industrialised part of the world. To bring it closer to home, in Britain we've seen an increase in the last few years in quite extreme flooding and all around the country there are flood risk management plans that have been implemented and one of their big focuses is on the agricultural drainage and water level management which they are asking farmers and landowners to undertake. Hi Judith, it's Miriam. Um, I'm just uh, squelching through the field down to the bottom. I don't know if you can hear my feet. We're in my wellies. Um, So I'm in Somerset and we had pretty much three solid days of rain. I'd say about a foot (laughs) of rain going by the water in the wheelbarrows. And um, the field uh, is quite clay, clay field, uh, mainly grass with some docks. Oh, I can start, I can hear the water already. So at the bottom of the field, there's a sort of runoff um, trickle that dried up when it was the drought in May. But now, don't know if you can hear I'm approaching the water oh just got nettled here we go so that's what was basically there was no water there not very long ago Um, and it's flowing really fast and uh, I don't know exactly where it's come from, but it's it's just a little, I don't know, it's just a couple of feet across. And following the rain, there's, it's a different colour, it's, it's a bit murky. There's also loads of suds in it, uh, that sort of soapy suds that I'm a bit unsure as to what causes it. Um, but you get it in the sea sometimes, don't you, as well? And it's just got me thinking about, you know, where is this water going? What's gone into it? All these fields around us, you know, what's been sprayed on there? What animal poo's been dumped on there? And then, of course, what those animals ate has gone into that. And... Yeah, where that's heading, obviously, eventually, that that flowing stream uh, is heading on its way to the sea, eventually, I assume. And it's just made me very aware of anything I do in this field, anything I plant, anything I feed the soil with, um, will travel and affect things that I will never see. Um, and I guess that's the hmm, the thing that is difficult to grasp as humans, as an animal, where, you know, I guess we're sort of built to see very immediate causality but anything that happens further and further and further away from us, even if it's because of us, it's hard for us to accept or understand our role in it. You know, and I guess that's why science is so important, because it allows us to expand our realm of uh, understanding of connections. Um, and... You know, because there's so many of us and because we've spread ourselves around the planet and because of our activities that are quite 
intensive farming, fishing, you know, we have to educate ourselves on how one thing affects another, affects another, affects another, affects another, um, and try to understand the complexities of ecosystems that we are inevitably a part of. Uh, but yeah, I just, that's it really. I'm squelching my way back now. Um, yeah. Okay, bye. Hey Miriam, your field musing that I've just heard, it, it reminded me of something um, I heard in a TED talk by Nancy Rabelais, who is a marine ecologist. You were musing that we don't connect our activities in one place with their impact on another. So we humans, we don't see the consequences of our actions if they are out of sight. You were standing by the stream and you were thinking what runs into the stream, what comes from humans, what comes from animals, what do those suds mean? I don't know what the suds mean either. And where does the stream go? What does it flow out into? So there's a really nice link here, actually, which is to go from a stream in Dorset to the Mississippi River. And you will see why. The Mississippi River flows from Minnesota in the north of the United States to the Gulf of Mexico. Farmers in this watershed area grow corn and soya in rotation. They fertilize their fields with nitrogen and phosphorus. This is becoming a familiar story. The runoffs from the fields join the Mississippi River and flow out into the Gulf of Mexico 1,000 miles later. And boom, the Gulf of Mexico has a dead zone of 8,000 square miles. Nitrogen and phosphorus are used all around the world as fertilizer, but uh, research and mitigations from scientists are advocating minimal usage, targeted fertilizing, experimenting with other crops that have longer root systems that hold the nitrogen into the soil. These corn and soya crops are not necessarily for food consumption, but for animal feed and the making of ethanol as additive to car fuel. In the UK, standard unleaded fuel contains up to 5% ethanol. Now you're probably thinking, well, that's good, 5% of my unleaded fuel is plant-based. But if the production of ethanol is actually causing environmental damage, then you're back to square one. A little statistic for you. It takes 26.1 pounds of corn to make a gallon of ethanol fuel. So now, Miriam, you have to go back to your stream, or more likely, go to the map and see where that stream flows out into. It's a mystery. Roots. Roots clutch earth, bind together soil, drink the rain. Roots talk to each other, form webs, form homes, form. Home. Home is movable, was movable. People's roots spread thinly back when they moved. Now their roots are thick and brittle, smothering the emptied soil. Like phytoplankton smothers the seabed, the earth, its roots wrenched out, the tangle of limber strings removed, and straight rows imposed and smothered with feed. Menhaden fish oil feed, too much feed for the emptied soil, too much, it runs off. 
it runs into the thickened streams, once clear, now silty and thick, to the sea, to smother the seabed. I'm sitting on the beach, looking onto the English Channel, and the wind is dropped, and the sun is out. There's a little necklace of clouds above the horizon, but they seem a long way away. The sky is pretty blue, seagull in front of me. I know. I can't see it, but I know feet away from me is something that we all refer to as seaweed. You know, those long, dark, slap-your-face, gelatinous ribbons that taste of the sea? What else would you call them? Seaweed? Seaweed. But in fact, they are macroalgae. And a bit of science, these ancient Plant-like structures are multicellular, they're not vascular like the seagrasses, so they're not categorised as a plant. They reproduce via spores, they take their nutrients from the water. They have no roots, but something called holdfasts, which anchor them to hard surfaces. So if you've walked along the beach, you will often come across these, these seaweeds, uh, you pick them up and they're, as described, they're kind of gelatinous, they're stringy, they, they've got a fabulous smell to them. But at the end, there's often these sort of crusted, finger-like tendrils, and they're sort of, they maybe, they've got little rocks in them, sediment, snails, and these are the holdfasts. And they literally attach the seaweed, the kelp, whatever species it is, to a hard surface you tend to see a lot after a, after a storm. I'm developing a, um, a very strong admiration for these macroalgae and uh, I, I kind of see them uh, as an organism that gets on with its own life, doesn't ask much of anybody and it's, uh, they have a superhero power which is that some species can grow a metre a day. Now they are a uh, photosynthesizing organism, so they are going to um, absorb, they're going to need CO2 uh, to, to thrive. And it's causing a, a lot of excitement within the uh, scientific community for decades. In fact, this isn't something new. The scientific community has been working on this, wondering whether um, seaweed <laughs> macroalgae forests uh, might be uh, a way of potential, have the potential in combating climate change. So this would be carbon sequestration, which I'm just going to do a definition detour on. Carbon sequestration is the process of capturing, securing and storing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The idea is to stabilise carbon in solid and dissolved forms so that it doesn't cause the atmosphere to warm. And the, the seaweed has advantages over trees, which is the other one of the other options for carbon sequestration, in that they, the seaweed won't be using taking up land, uh, but also their very fast growth uh, puts them at an advantage to trees that are going to take you know, a couple of decades become before they become sort of significant sequesters of carbon. So it's an exciting concept, but the scientists are having to work through scalability and ecological impact. What would the impact be on oceans if gigatons of dead seaweed full of absorbed CO2 collect at the bottom of the ocean? A gigaton, by the way, is equal to a million metric tons. And that's what they mean when they talk about scalability.
In case anybody wants to follow up, these are my sources. Project Seagrass, The Guardian, Frontiers in Ecology Evolution, PBSO NewsHour, Good News Network, Science News, National Geographic, Science News for Students, Callum Roberts, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is nearly always seen as NOAA, Oregon State University, TED Talk with Nancy Rabelais, Quora.com, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, video A Breathless Ocean, and the Wildlife Trust. We're recording. Isn't it nice that there's some hopeful news? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Macroalgae. Superpowers. <laughs> I know. It's great. It's, I know. It's not all the species, but um, there are definitely species that can grow a meter a day. So it's amazing. It would literally be extraordinary. And if you think. I can't even imagine that, really, you know. No, I know. Because I, I, you, should, you should almost be able to see it happening. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that you, I love the feel of algae. But you know, I'm, I'm thinking of those big, wide blades, you know? I'm not yeah, 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 that's what I was imagining when you... Yeah, not the little it. popper ones. And the popper, the popper ones, the little bladders on uh, other species of seaweed um, are for flotation. Ah. Yeah, and so it actually keeps the seaweed up so that it can photosynthesize. So yeah, well, that's that's my understanding of what I've been reading there. So when you see the little bladders, they're like little little um the little uh, flotation devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Little boys, yeah. boys. Little um, see see um, uh, what do you call them? L- Lilos. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was thinking of a life jacket. <laughs> oh, sorry. Both the seagrasses and the macroalgae are both carbon sequesters. Yeah. And the stuff coming through on seagrass, literally, as you can see from my my, my excited um, breaking news. That's great. Before we go on, I have some corrections to make, Miriam. Okay. Right. One of them is I said that dead zones are visible, can be visible to the eye. That is incorrect. Okay. Um, so that's uh, to be corrected. And the second one is I said, because I'm talking about the scale of the macroalgae that we would need to become a really effective carbon sink. Yes, it's important to get this right, because what I said was a gigaton is equal to a million metric tons. Right. It's incorrect. It is a billion metric tons. Right. the, we don't know what a gigaton is, but we probably have a better idea of what a, a, a billion of something is. And yeah. so the thing that is really important about a gigaton is the scale of the amount of carbon sequestration that we're going to need on the planet in the next 30 years is right. kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, this thing that you, I think I'd, I was vaguely aware that seaweed, as I knew it before today, yeah. Seaweed could be sort of carbon sinks as well, but it hadn't come into focus for me. And then, of course, it's that classic thing where you've heard about something and suddenly you see it everywhere. Yes. And so I I think I sent it to you, didn't I? There's someone shared it on Facebook, this Welsh, um, well, maybe maybe they haven't started it yet, but a commercial seaweed and shellfish farm for for, for this exact reason. Mm. And then you said that the Sussex Wildlife Trust were trying to set one up as well. Yep. And so you've that's got, just here, and I just, I'm just yeah. hoping that there's lots of these things starting well, around the world. There is, because there's, um, there's one from the University of Swansea, I think, right. which has now got an established five-acre seagrass meadow, as it were, which mm. is apparently doing, it's looking very promising. And I, and, and I know in, there's another one in Australia, they've got 10 acres that's been established. Great. But the, the point is, if you're looking at, and it's, this isn't about competition, it's just, this is about scalability yeah is that the one in southern virginia is um so if we've got five acres 10 acres they've gone to nine thousand acres in 20 years i mean this is literally phenomenal that's amazing yeah yeah so and scalability and one of the um ted talks i listened to the author was saying scalability is something that we have to 
we have to take on board. So as we're so drawing... This, the idea of scalability is it needs to get and be able to get really big. Huge, absolutely huge, which is why we're talking about gigatons. Yeah. In the next 30 years, two things have to happen happen at the same time. One is that we're sinking carbon, and the one and the other one is that we're stopping carbon. Yeah, reducing our output. Reducing our output. So those two things, in the next 30 years, we yeah. have to sink and stop at the same time. Yeah. And the other thing is the documentation uh, on the uh, re regrassing, as it were, uh, is re super important. And the one in uh, Southern Virginia has got 20 years of documentation. And I'm, mm. you know, one assumes this is all shareable information. Um, so yeah. other people who are setting up seagrass restoration projects will actually, they will learn from it. And there's a, there's a really a beautiful quote, actually. So it's a, journal, a journalist, Joseph Polidoro, in Science News, and he says, in the world's largest seagrass project, scientists have, looked, have observed an ecosystem from birth to full flowering. Well, I think that's really magic, actually. Yeah, it's lovely. If you think of the state of the seabed when they started planting 20 years ago, and that seabed, as far as I can tell, was just was depleted. It was, I'm assuming it was sediment. Um, and with probably very little growing on it. And there'd been a massive hurricane in the 1930s and there had been toxic poisons that had killed off the seagrasses. And they don't mention anything about the fishing, so I don't know if it's too close to the shore to have been dredged. I don't, so I don't know if fishing's impacted. But imagine that you, 20 years ago, you've got this, this dead, barren landscape. Oh, Callum Roberts calls it the gritty basement of the sea. <laughs> which I think I love, I think, because if it, you know, if you're a swimmer, or um, you can feel it under your feet, can't you? Like, oh, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of grit. Would you imagine you've taken that, that gritty basement of the sea, and in 20 years you've got seagrass meadows? I mean, it's got to, it's got to really fill your heart, hasn't it? I'm sort of immediately thinking about soil, oh. and uh, and how, let's say, you have a bit of soil that's been depleted of its nutrients. Yeah. Um, it's been, let's say it's been over farmed, uh, it's been sprayed, whatever, you can restore that mm. and mm. you just have to feed it a little bit yep. and allow nature to take over. Yeah. Um, and rest it, rest it. Rest it. Yeah. Rest, give it, give nature a ch We're resting, but nature's working. <laughs> it's us who need to stop doing stuff. Oh, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, on our field, we had bare patches in between the rye grass that had been planted. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, this field would have been stripped of its topsoil. Yep. Its natural grasses and plants would have been taken off. It would have been overfed and mm -hmm. it would have been and it was then planted up with a rye crop. Mm -hmm. uh, th that sort of took over and then everything else in between couldn't get any light and didn't grow. Mm -hmm. And now where we've been mowing and leaving and we've just been, you know, cutting the grass as regularly as possible in an area, mm -hmm. there's all this stuff and all the natural grasses are coming back, watching nature restore itself. Mm -hmm. If you, but you have, we have to give it a chance. Yeah. yeah. And we have to help it because we've ruined it. So... I think that that process and the fact that it takes 20 years, which feels very long, but is also not that long, yeah. is 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 amazing. Mm -hmm. No, I really like what you said. You said we have to rest while nature works. Yeah. Just standing back will be one way of doing it. But I suspect mm. that there's ways of standing back. Yes. There's ways of you um, mitigate against. I don't know, because what, what is it? The You're going to get invasive species or absolutely that, that come in and they took over completely in the yeah. field yeah so um so you know you either and, and i don't know if the right thing to do is to wait and to let other things fight back yeah or should we be controlling the chickweed yeah. like that's like and i think that's this whole thing of these ecosystems yeah. that we cause an imbalance mm. within them mm. and then yeah how how we help to restore the balance is very delicate science. I think the thing that I need to hear time and time again is that it is possible. Well, this is this is like 
episode two is, <laughs> is, is is raising raising these possibilities, and it's not just the possibility. The clearly the the seagrass restoration in Southern Virginia is because of the scale of it. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, it's there's other ones that are successful, but this is the scale of it which makes it literally really really cheering. Actually, yeah. So it's kind of it's a, it's a lovely way to end episode two. Agreed. Mm. Nice to have a bit of hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I think next episode might be quite sad. You know, I said at the at the beginning, this ain't going to be pretty. But if, if anybody is listening, the fact that you're listening is you're investing in your thinking about the environment just by by listening, and so. We're, we, we are, you and I, Miriam, and, the, and listeners, we're, we're broadening the conversation about this. And you, me, and listeners, we are invested. So don't miss the fish stories. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it, they, they are sad, but we're, um, you know, today was, a, today was a lovely example of how things are progressing. And, oh. oh I just have one little correction. Yes. You just said that it was a, from a field in Dorset to Mississippi. Thank you. It's Somerset. <laughs> I thought I had that wrong. <laughs> no, I think we shall say goodbye and we will end with a contemporaneous quote. Yes. Uh, read beautifully by Daniel Houdon. Lovely. See you later. Okay, bye. Bye. The arrival of the Manhaden is announced by their appearance at the top of the water. They swim in immense schools, their heads close to the surface, packed side by side, and often tier above tier, almost as closely as sardines in a box. A gentle ripple indicates their position, and this may be seen at a distance of nearly a mile by the lookout at the masthead of a fishing vessel. At the slightest alarm, the school sinks towards the bottom, often escaping its pursuers. Sailing over a body of Manhaden, swimming at a short distance below the surface, one may see their glittering backs beneath, and the boat seems to be gliding over a floor inlaid with blocks of silver. Join us next time for episode three, where... We stay in the waters of Chesapeake Bay and moving on upward from the seabed, we join the fish that swim in its waters. Until next time, this has been The Fateful Tale of Chesapeake Bay.